Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. Welcome to Dan's Talks. My guest today is Dick White, a Montauker, uh, I think born and raised, but we'll get to that, who has been very involved in uh, some of the most uh, important things going on in Montauk for years and years, and is currently the chairman of the Montauk Historical Society. But let me talk to you first about, are you a true Montauker in the sense that you were born and out here in the midst of back way in the day when Montauk had a lot of military stuff going on? Except for four days. Um, yeah. Well, what happened was I was born in February and uh, it snowed heavily. So my mother couldn't get back to Montauk after she gave birth to me at Southampton Hospital. Oh. So outside of those four days, I've, I've lived in Montauk uh, for 82 years. And um, you were, I, I think you were not only born and raised here, but uh, you when you went to school here. And then uh, did you go off to college or did you go to work when you, uh, what did you do? Uh, yes, I went off to college and then... Um, I got married in my senior year, and uh, my then wife, uh, Betsy, uh, got a job teaching school in the eighth grade in Montauk. And so uh, I was going to uh, college in Monmouth, Illinois, Monmouth uh, College. Mm -hmm. But I finished up at Southampton College because Betsy had a job teaching school in Montauk. And then uh, you worked for your your dad, who for a while owned the for a long time owned the Montauk in Montauk the White's Drugstore, uh, which uh, was that something that his father had. Uh, what how I had heard about it was that uh, his his dad had two sons, one of whom ran came to get the Montauk store, and the other. Uh, the one in East Hampton. That's what I heard. And that must have been around 1915, 1920, somewhere around there. So it go, goes back a long way. Uh, my grandfather had um, five uh, drugstores, uh, and one of which was the East Hampton store. And uh, when the Depression came, just prior to that, my father was at Dartmouth College and my uncle Bill was at Wharton. And uh, the Depression wiped my grandfather's uh, finances completely out. Both of them left their, uh, their colleges. And uh, my uncle Bill, being the oldest brother, got the East Hampton store and my dad got the Montauk store. I see. My grandfather came to Montauk in 1925 to be on the ground floor with Carl Fisher. Oh, wow. And um, he saw that uh, if this was going to be a boom out here, and he wanted to be a, the first guy there. And uh, so by the time he was wiped out, uh, in fact, he, he had a house that was right next to the store in East Hampton. He lost that house, the family house, 
because he couldn't pay $400 in taxes. And uh, so they had to live in the apartment up, oh, over the drugstore in East Hampton. Anyway, okay. uh, my father then uh, took over the Montauk store. Yep. He and my Uncle Bill went to Columbia School of Pharmacy and got their pharmacy licenses. So from about 1927, I would say, until my dad sold the store to your dad in 1953, 53, 55, 55. Uh, my dad had the store in Montauk and then they also had the liquor store. Now, when I came back, uh, he had already sold the uh, drugstore to your dad, but we had the liquor store at the other end of the building. And so I worked for my dad for a couple of years until he said, uh, he was going to go to Florida. When he came back, he was going to sell the liquor store. And I should think it over. I see. And so then I bought the store from the liquor store from him and then ultimately moved it into the space that had been the drugstore. Yep. So um, the thing that's so that I found so remarkable about your life is that uh, you've spent a whole lifetime involved in uh, the various uh, civic organizations in Montauk to help promote the town. I, and I could probably name everything from the the, the Kennedy was at the Kennedy House, which became the museum, uh, to the historic society. To uh, uh, you, you've uh, been a, a trustee for the county parks in Montauk. You've been. 1970, yeah. And, then, and it's just been remarkable. I don't know anyone who's devoted their life to, to such, such a thing with, without much regard for uh, uh, it, it economy. Yeah, when I, I, what I remember, because we were both teenagers back in the day, what I remember back when my dad bought the store, but what I remember was that your dad had a lot of stocks and bonds and he'd made a lot of money. And so he was on the phone. So he had a couple of kids where you were one. And I just presumed you didn't have to worry about money after that. You could just worry about Montauk. And, and that's probably accurate. Uh, at least it seems that way to me, unless you had a big career I don't know about. Uh, no, uh, you, you've, uh, you're right. I, I, I didn't, I can't say I didn't worry about money. We didn't, uh, in the beginning, when Betsy and I came back from Monmouth, we didn't have much money. I I, um, I think I made something like five or 6,000 bucks a year. Yeah. And uh, Betsy made the same amount of money. And uh, when Betsy worked for the uh, school, we, uh, we just put her money in the bank because we knew at some point there'll be other kids, our kids, and she would not be teaching. And we didn't want to get used to living on her salary and then lose it. So oh. we put it in the bank for the day we were going to buy property and a house and so forth. Were you were you involved in the library at all? Was that one of the projects you... Um, well, I supported it, but uh, I was not on the... Um, all, all these things, all these things needed somebody to give it a push because in back in the day that Montauk was a motel town, it was brand new in the, as a motel town. Uh, it uh, the, the Fisher uh, project had failed. Uh, 
it was a fishing town and it would, and there were military bases all over the place which left um and and here here you came into this picture and uh um uh, talk about how the Montauk Historical Society was started which i believe it did as a museum over on second house there are three there were three original houses in Montauk which were when or the rest of it was ranch land uh, back in the 1800s, I guess, 17 even. And those houses were for the the help and the shepherds and stuff who would handle the cattle, which, which were driven out to Montauk. But uh, the second, first house burned down. It was near where the uh, the, the uh, tent camp is today in Hither Hills. Uh, but second house, when we were teenagers, was owned privately. And then now it's something else entirely. Tell us what happened. Well, the houses, uh, first, second, and third house, and the reason they were called first, second, and third, it was the it proximity to East Hampton. So the first right. house is the closest and then so on. And uh, it's very interesting to think that when Carl Fisher came here in 1924, up until then, Montauk existed primarily as grazing land, uh, other than Camp Wyckoff in 1898. It, it right. existed primarily as grazing land for uh, cattle, and the cattle came from as far away as Patrick, and it would be driven out in the springtime, and then uh, it would be uh, harvested in the, in the fall. So when Fisher came in 24, in the 20s, that was the first time there was real development right. of, uh, of a housing uh, and, and stores and other buildings, resort buildings. Um, and then, of course, he went broke uh, in the Depression and in the 30s. And, and it sat dormant right. until the 50s because of World War II, first the Depression, then World War II. And um, you're right, uh, World War II saw uh, the Army there, Army Signal Corps at the Lighthouse, and then you had the Navy Torpedo Testing Base at, um, at Fort Pond, and those sailors lived in the manor and, and buildings around the manor. And uh, then you had the Coast Watch, the guys that walked up and down the beach. Um, so it was very heavily military during the war. So what happened? Uh, the, the 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 historic society was founded, I guess, uh, around the same time that they began to put curbing on the streets in Montauk for sidewalks <laughs> downtown on the main street, and uh, the horses were now not coming downtown from the ranch as much as they had earlier when we I first got there and. And, the, and there used to be a cattle drive that came through town. You probably saw that. I was on the le I was on a horse on the last cattle drive. Where were they driven from and to? Well, what we would do is we would go out to the ranch at about four thirty in the morning, saddle up, and we would ride to the railroad station. The cattle would have come in the night before on cattle cars. They would have been. Uh, taken off the cattle cars and we made a corral out of snow fence 
and we would water them down and give them some hay. And then at daybreak, at daybreak, we would um, open the fence and send them down Edgemere Road. And it, it was a lot different then. The ball field wasn't there. The post office wasn't there. Right. None of that was paved. That was all open fields. And uh, the only the only disaster was Mrs. Webb's lawn. We cut the corner there by the Catholic Church <laughs> and up the highway, but we had to go across Webb's lawn to do it. <laughs> About 80 head of cattle and, and the horses. So we made a pretty much of a mess of Mrs. Webb's flowers and so forth. Then we'd go up the highway up into uh, East Lake Drive and then down East Lake Drive. And, then, and in those days, there were only three houses on the upland side of East Lake Drive, three right. yeah. in the beginning. All the rest of it, all 2,000 acres was open grazing land. And we would have burnt all 2,000 acres back in March. And so by the time the cattle came, it was all green up. And it was very lush green grass. And then it was divided into three different pastures. And we would bring, put the cattle in there, and then they would be there for the summer. And then they would be driven off back to the railroad station? No, then they went out by car or truck. I see. How was and that? that was the last one. That the must have been I was, on was the last one. After that, they all... How old? Uh, when that? What year would that have been? That would have been uh, 1956. Yep, that's what I thought. I missed it. Any anyhow, talk about the lighthouse uh, a little bit about its history, and then uh, what what it's how, what it's become today, and and why you should go there. Okay, what happened was in 1984, the Coast Guard uh, had decided to demand the lighthouses. They were going to automate the lighthouse, automate the light, and automate the fog signal. They were going to remove the men that had been stationed there. There were five men that had been stationed there. And uh, so they uh, they approached, uh, the GSA approached all federal agencies to see if anybody wanted it. Nobody wanted it. They, so they tried the state, the county, the town, nobody wanted the lighthouse. So they were going to put plywood on the windows and a padlock on the gate and walk away. And uh, I, uh, I said to uh, Betsy, my wife, who was then vice president of historical society, I said, if, if you guys don't take over that lighthouse, it's going to be ruined. It's going to be wrecked. And uh, she went to a meeting and came back and said, oh, I got good news and bad news. The good news is they're going to take it over. The bad news is you're going to run it. <laughs> and uh, that was sort of like throwing Br'er Rabbit in the briar patch because that was a love of, of my life from the time I was a kid. I went there many, many times and uh, we were friendly with the keepers and so forth. So anyway, the Historical Society took it over. We had no money, zero dollars. Uh, the uh, second house part of it loaned us uh, 2,000 bucks to open the door. Virgil Conway, uh, a resident of Montauk, and at the time, Virgil was the chairman of the MTA, Metropolitan Transit Authority, and he kicked in 20,000 bucks. And later on, uh, uh, just before he died, he had given us a total of $750,000. Wow. 
over uh, several years. So we opened it up in 1987 in the spring uh, to the public. Uh, we had a minimal museum at that point. Uh, it was still pretty much uh, the, looked like a Coast Guard station. But slowly over the years, we've uh, managed to um, add a gift shop down at the bottom of the hill. We've uh, added a barn. We uh, just spent last year, we just spent a million dollars, a little bit more, repairing the tower and uh, getting the three and a half water lens back up on top after 30 years of uh, being uh, downstairs as a static display. And uh, we also, this year, we uh, the uh, uh, keeper's house now looks like a Coast Guard station like it did when we, uh, actually, no, before we bought it. Uh, before we took it over. Uh, but anyway, it looks like the red roof white building, like a Coast Guard station, which it was in 1939. So is the Coast Guard uh, operating anything at the lighthouse now? They they operate the fog signal, and they actually operate the light within the lens, ah. which is a, 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 it's a very powerful LED. And the, the new light, Shine. We we got a um, an email from a retired coastman who lives in uh, uh, Groton, Connecticut, Groton Long Point, and his uh, his email said it is so nice to see the light shining in my bedroom window once again, <laughs> and that's twenty miles away. Oh my God! So uh, you can see that the new light, the the old lens with the new light. Now, by the way, that lens is over a hundred years old. That's a, a gift from the France, I believe. Yes, the friend. I don't know about a gift, but it, we uh, it came from France. Uh, it was built in uh, 1902 and came here in 1903. Right, Ariane. What does the lens do, actually? It takes the light and amplifies it. It's actually a, a, a prism bullseye of, of uh, Fresnel glass, which is crystal. Yeah. It amplifies it. And so this little light, which is about this big, huh. and uh, it's running at half its potential, and yet it shines brightly over 20 miles. Why is it halfway? Why is it half? Because yeah. it's so warm when it runs, they're afraid to crank it up all the way because right. when it's on, it's on from dusk till dawn. And yeah. it's a long time to be that hot. I see. Uh, what's the most uh, dramatic event that's taken place off the coast of the lighthouse itself that you can rethink of besides maybe the Great Eastern or something like that? Well, the Great Eastern uh, was a boat that actually took the cable, the, the um, telegraph cable from the United States to England. Right. But when it came back, it ran into a rock, which is now called the Great Eastern. And it had to go, it had to limp into uh, Manhattan to be repaired. Um, uh, but I would, I'm thinking that uh, when the uh, Coast Guardsmen apprehended, oh no, didn't apprehend, ran into the German saboteurs on the beach uh, in, in the pig, I think that would be a pretty uh, historic moment.
Yes. Um, other than that, the Pelican uh, disaster on Labor Day on, in 1951. Right. Labor Day of 1951 and all 43, 44 people drowned. That was a terrible thing. Uh, and as you know, that those days the fishing industry was over in the harbor uh, in uh, Fort Pond. Right. And shortly after that, because of a hurricane and the Pel uh, Pelican, they moved into Lake Montauk. Yep. And um, that was where uh, Fish Angola was. That was a very interesting time in Montauk. They used to have a fisherman special that came out of Brooklyn. Right morning and and uh, they would come into montauk about six o'clock in the morning and these fishermen a lot of them would jump off the train before it even stopped to get <laughs> to run down to the boat to get their favorite spot on the boat yeah, there's pictures of that oh yeah and they were drinking on the train just like they did for uh, saint patrick's day recently <laughs> yeah yeah, and and the Montauk Saint Patrick, are you connected up with the Saint? Have you been uh, one of the what is that guy at the front? Grand Marshal. Yeah, were you Grand Marshal at one point? Yeah, that's one of the highlights of my life was yep. to be named Grand Marshal and and to walk that uh, mile and a half. Yeah, and to see all those happy people and so forth. Yeah, that's that's very special to be to be in that group of uh grand marshals it's um yeah very special so looking at montauk uh last summer and in recent years are you are you pleased with what you see in terms of people and uh what they do and is is it a good upswing in some ways uh that's a tough question danny <laughs> yeah um when I was in business, uh, of course, I wanted the people, and uh, that's what that's what made enabled me to send my kids to college and so forth. Um, it changes. It changes uh, with every generation. You know that when you and I were teenagers and of that ilk, uh, we did our thing. And then later on, we got married, had kids, and our <laughs> life changed. And other teenagers came by. And well, now you have a group of probably, well, the drinking age changed from when you and I were there to 21. So the, the it's an older group, but still in their 20s. And uh, they leave right after Labor Day. They don't come back in the winter. So... Um, I'm hoping that the 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 families will start to re come back to Montauk. Although, as you know, it has gotten very very expensive to yeah. to. A night at Gurney's went from about fifty five bucks to a thousand bucks, in just five years under the new ten years up the new ownership there. Yeah, I don't know how uh, people afford that with a family and yeah. go to a restaurant and two people is over a hundred bucks no matter what you do. I know. So it, yes, it has changed, but it, it's the economy that has changed it. Yeah. And, um, hopefully, um, it'll come back to the. I I liked it 
in the 50s when it was and 60s and 70s when it was mostly families that came out here. Yeah. Montauk was not the Hamptons. Montauk was the more of the blue collar guy. Yep. New York City firemen, New York City policemen, um, carpenters, plumbers, that ilk, um, family people, uh, not the wealthy. But they enjoyed Montauk because they enjoyed the fishing and they enjoyed the beach and the, and the surfers enjoyed it, Montauk. There's a whole element of Montauk that are surfers that enjoy it year-round. Yep. Well, I, thank you for being on the podcast. It runs 20 minutes, and I have the clock here. And we could talk, I think, another 30, 40 minutes, you and I, or even more. Uh, and uh, I appreciate being able to talk to you and uh, uh, going over all the times that we've been out here, and especially what you've done. Thank you. I never got a chance to talk about your stories. Oh. About Howard Hughes living in the White Elephant. Yeah. And the guys that ran their cars up the driveway of the lighthouse and see how close they could come to Portugal. Yeah, I did a lot over the years with the paper. I've had a lot of fun with it. Thanks, Dick. Yes, thank you, Dan. We'll see each other soon, perhaps for the Michigan game. We'll see that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're gonna you know where you're gonna be? Unfortunately, I'm gonna be at the firehouse because the game is at seven thirty and our department meeting is at seven thirty. I see. Why well, well we'll talk soon. Yes. Thanks. Thanks much. Bye bye. Then yeah.